This podcast is a production of Schweitzer, a United Methodist Church, transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Good morning. How is everyone? Awesome. Well, I am excited to share another message in the series uh, called Paul, The Road of Head. We find ourselves in Ephesus today. So um, really excited about the Acts 19 text we have to look out. I am Mark McNelly. I'm the director of worship here. Uh, director of worship. No, I'm not. That's KJ. That's why I make sure and mute this whenever I'm singing in worship. I'm the director of outreach. I uh, had the pleasure of planting church at the center a few years ago, but now I joined the preaching team and getting to see and meet more of you on Sunday mornings has just been a great, great experience for me. So like KJ said, come and introduce yourself to me. Uh, if you're listening to me preach uh, more and more and you want to get to know me, I, I'd love to talk to you. We, uh, I want to look at a guy named Sam Houston in the 1800s. He was a very uh, prominent and powerful figure in America. Yeah. Okay. That, that is just too close to my mouth. All right. Is that better? All right. Thanks, Kevin. So Sam Houston was a prominent figure in Texas, Amer- early American history, 1800s, and his baptism is, is famous, actually kind of infamous. At age 61, after a life of drinking and debauchery and, and gambling and, and warfare and all this, he comes to faith in Christ, radical conversion, and uh, it is said that he is getting baptized in the river, uh, happened a lot, still does some, and so Sam Houston is in the river, and, and he's about to go under, and the pastor starts to kind of talk about baptism. He says, uh, Sam, your, all of your sins are going to just, they're going to be cleansed. They're going to go off of you and into the water. So Sam kind of stops, and he puts his head down, and he prays for about a minute, and the pastor lets him do this, and, and he goes, well, what was that little prayer for? He goes, well, I'm praying for the fish downstream. <laughs> And then later, right when he's about to dunk him, he notices that his wallet is still in his back pocket. And he's like, uh, Sam, you might want to pull your wallet out of there. You're about to get fully immersed. And he goes, no, I think, my, I think my wallet needs baptized too. So this experience of Sam Houston and his baptism really spoke to me in preparing this message. Because what I saw there was a man coming to Christ and a man realizing that, you know what, this is going to change things. This is going to change how I see, how I how I act, my behaviors, you know, kind of morality. But this is also going to change my money. This is going to change how I see how the money is spent in my life. And so we have to ask ourselves as Christians, if we've come to Christ, can we keep those two things in separate accounts? Can we kind of have our faith over here? Can we kind of have our finances over here? You know, can we have our, our money over here? Can we, can we keep our morality over here? And this, this text today is, is going to teach us uh, that we that we can't. Now in uh, Ephesus, I want to set the scene. I think it's been very helpful for Jason and Bob and Jake and I to kind of give you a little bit of a snapshot about where Paul was whenever he was uh, teaching, planting churches, and we're learning uh, still from him today. He was in Ephesus. Now Ephesus is uh, in the Mediterranean region. It, it, it is in Asia. It's in modern day Turkey. It was a uh, on the left over here is Greece, and then obviously on the other side of that Italy. And so you can kind of see how it's nestled really nicely in the whole Mediterranean world, the early Greco-Roman world. And so Ephesus was a deep seaport, which meant that it was very important for the moving of commerce in and out of that region of Asia by water and by land. Uh, so there was a lot of business going on there. Uh, but it was also a place, uh, not quite to the level of Athens, but it was a place of philosophy. There was a famous library. If we could look at the library, I think it's two slides down. 
the Library of Celsus is, is still, these are modern day tourists, so that was a famous, famous library. There was a 25,000 seat amphitheater, so the philosophers would speak there, there would be drama that would happen there, and so th these are the ruins today, so massive theater. And then probably the largest attraction in Ephesus was the temple, the temple of Artemis. Artemis uh, was one of the uh, gods, the Greek gods, uh, goddesses, sorry. And in Rome, she was known as Diana. In Ephesus, she was known as Artemis. And this was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So not only is philosophy happening, not only is business and commerce happening, this is a tourist. This is like Branson in Asia, okay? I mean, like people are coming to see the temple of Artemis. And instead of listening to country music, they were worshiping a goddess, but, but this was bringing a lot of people through Ephesus. It was a hub. It was a place where a lot of things were happening. What I want to do is kind of get into the first part of the text. Acts 19 is a long chapter, but we're going to look at two passages today that kind of unpack for us what the impact is whenever the gospel takes hold in a community. We're going to look at when, uh, when the gospel comes and is preached and people come to faith, if that can if that can affect an entire city economically, then what can that mean for us if it takes hold in our lives? So let's look at Acts 19. We're going to start in verse 8. Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Did you catch that? People throughout the province of Asia. So if you remember the map, the fact that people were hearing Paul first in the synagogue and then in the temple or in the hall of Tyrannus and in the public courts, so much movement through Ephesus that the gospel made its way into all of the province of Asia. That's amazing. Paul was very strategic in where he preached the gospel and planted churches. Pick it up in verse 18. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. So the message about the Lord spread widely and had powerful effect. So as I've mentioned, we're seeing here in these two passages from Acts 19 how Paul brought the gospel, and when he did that, when he brought the gospel to Ephesus, it reordered their morals, and it reordered their money. There's an intersection. I like to think of that. When we think of roads that, that cross, if you're heading down Sunshine and you want to get to the west side of Springfield, you're going through Glenstone. Intersection of faith and finances. As believers, we've got to accept the fact that those two overlap and intersect. William Wil Wilberforce is a character in history that I am absolutely fascinated by. He is single-handedly given credit for abolishing the slave trade in Great Britain, uh, by the way, decades before we fought the Civil War here. And I always thought that his crusade, his main crusade in the legislature, he was a in the uh, House of Commons, and he was a politician, that his main crusade was to rid Great Britain, Europe, and the world from the slave trade. And I was wrong. This is his famous quote, one, his most famous quote. 
God Almighty, so a man of strong faith, has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. So manners at the time in, in the English lexicon was uh, morality. So by manners, he means morality. He is saying that, yes, we need to make light of the, uh, the horrors of the slave trade and how we can't make money on this anymore and how these are human lives, but we're really not going to do that until we get down to the foundation of how people live their lives, of, of just basic 101 morality. And it's, it's amazing how Wilberforce puts those two together. And as he goes throughout his decades, he ended up uh, accomplishing the abolition of the slave trade just days before his death. And so we have to see and learn from Wilberforce in that. What does that look like for you? Not many of you are going to run for public office. Um, not many of you, are, when you get in public office, are, are going to take up a moral cause uh, or a financial cause to right our society's wrongs, cure our society's ills. But what does it look like for us as Christians to have the kind of reaction to our faith that Sam Houston did at his baptism, that William Wilberforce did in his life? Well, I'm going to give you some examples. I have some from people that I've witnessed in my nine years of Christian living and and in my own life, and then I'm going to offer that the Holy Spirit might highlight some in yours. My daughter is 15 now. Um, I accept and receive all of your prayers for that. Uh, She is an amazing girl, and one of the things that has uh, really struck me in this day and age is how she's so public about her faith. She she puts it on uh, social media. She talks to her uh, friends that aren't believers about it, and she also takes a stand with her money. She sells her artwork and makes uh, money doing that, and so she has her own money to spend. And when she was reading about how Old Navy and Forever 21 have sweatshops, and actually promote slave labor in the making of their clothing, according to, the, according to the reading that she was doing, she came to the conviction that I can no longer support that. I can no longer shop at those two places, and I used to, and I, I still kind of like their clothes, but I, I can no longer go there. So this was an area where my daughter, by the, just being a faithful Christian, the Holy Spirit put it on her heart to not purchase clothing from those two places. Brian Hammonds is a businessman, very successful businessman here on campus. Uh, Black Walnuts, how many of you know the Hammonds, the Black Walnuts? Not many of you, okay, well, sells the Black Walnuts. And uh, Brian is owner of a very successful company, and in his newsletter, he always puts scripture. He has some sort of a devotional piece in each one of his monthly newsletters. Now, he knows, he, he practiced law, and he's also had lawyers talk to him about how you know, you got to kind of be careful. There could be people in our culture today. You could have suppliers. You could have customers. You could have reps who are going to, this is going to rub them the wrong way. And you want to make sure that you don't ruffle any feathers. And Brian just says, no. My faith is important to me. And if people choose to stop selling me stuff that I need to run my business or stop buying my product, then so be it. I can live with that. I have to make a stand. The next one is a uh, example of, I used to be in the t-shirt business, so I used to print t-shirts. And there was a restaurant bar that my friend uh, Jamie and I were selling t-shirts to, and Jamie was my partner when I came to faith in Christ. So I can remember back before I came a Christian, some of the t-shirts that I made for places. Lord have mercy. And so 
So we have this restaurant bar come to us. They're like, okay, so we've got this wet t-shirt contest, all right? And so what I want to do this year is I want to do 2,000 t-shirts, and I want to put the picture of last year's wet t-shirt, wet t-shirt contest winner on this year's t-shirt. 2,000 t-shirts times $10 a t-shirt. Order. I look at Jamie's just like, dude, we can't. We're not doing that. We're not putting that on a t-shirt. We just cannot make that decision. We have to turn down that business. She also, for the bar side of her business, wanted us to put a saying on a shirt, just the print of a saying that I can't say in church. Use your imagination. But Jamie was just a great friend and leader in my life early on where he was, in, he was encompassing the concept of what was happening here in, in Acts 19. He was saying, you know what, Mark, we are followers of Jesus and that intersects the stream of where we would make our money and the places where we would spend our money. The final one I have is a personal boycott. Uh, really appreciate Jason and Bob bringing up the issues of pornography and sexual sin last week in Corinth, uh, the Las Vegas of the day. Corinth was a big mess in that area, and so uh, I loved how they talked about that and, and really did a great job with that. But for me, I have a past in that area, and so when I started to see Hardee's try to sell cheeseburgers like this, and then show the next one. These are the PG-13 Hardee's commercials. I said to myself, you know what? I love Hardee's fries and shakes. Not so much their burgers, but you know, I cannot go there anymore. So I'm entering year five of a boycott of Hardee's. And Carl's Jr., by the way. Okay, they're like, anyway. So <laughs> what does that look like in your life? I don't know. I can't speak for the Holy Spirit. I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit is stirring some areas where there could be compromise in an area where you're bringing money into your life or where maybe possibly money is going out. There are two things when it comes to the issue of Christians and our moral, how we morally project ourselves and present ourselves to the culture that I would offer up. In prayer, I came up with two things. And the first one is how we present ourselves on social media. Because so much of our communication, especially the communication that we make that hits the big stage, the number of people who see and respond internally, if not externally, to what you post on social media is, is great. It's, it's exponential number. And so when I see Christians post things that prompt and provoke anger, maybe they're solicitous, maybe they're trying to just get people stirred up about politics or some other thing, or provoke people to lust, or just try to get a, a cheap, cheap laugh, I think to myself, it, it's, it breaks my heart when I'm not being judgmental. It really breaks my heart. We struggle, right, with that pendulum? But Paul is speaking to this. Again, we go back to Scripture, and we see that none of these issues we face are new to our day. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. He's in Ephesus around 52 AD, and he's writing this letter back to the church in 62, about a decade later. And he says, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful, so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. A little bit later in verse 4 of chapter 5, obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Said, let there be thankfulness to God. So Paul is telling the church in Ephesus, now you guys have Christ. Now you guys present 
the love of God to the world, do that in a way that doesn't provoke people to think that don't build up. Ask yourself, is this thing I'm posting, is this thing I'm saying tearing down somebody or something, even an idea, or is it building up? Am I lifting someone up? Am I bringing out the image of God in them? Am I drawing them down into things like anger or lust? The second common thing that I see that Christians really need to do a heart check on would be obviously the erotic industry. Jason and uh, Bob did a great job with that last week, so I won't go into details, but I think of uh, the numbers. And here are some numbers. The amount of Christians who profess whenever they're polled anonymously that they participate in, you know, erotic fiction or in the uh, pornography industry, all of those different things. And the number of people who profess to be Christians in the United States, I put A and B together, and what I come up with is, what if Christians just said, you know what, no, we're not spending money on this anymore. Think about the economic impact that Christians had on the city of Ephesus when they started changing how they spent their money. What would it look like for an industry that is tearing down so many families and breaking apart so many relationships? What if it just crumbled because people who love Jesus said no more? We can't spend our time and money on that anymore. So I want to look at another story in Acts chapter 19 and continue to see how the gospel stirred up this change in Ephesus. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. In case you didn't know, if you're reading Acts, the way was the early term that people used to describe Christians or Christianity. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith, who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. He called them together along with others employed in similar trades and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business, but as you've seen and heard, This man, Paul, has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not talking about the loss of public respect for our businesses. I'm also concerned about the temple of the great goddess Artemis, that it will lose its influence, and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess, worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world will be robbed of her great prestige. As their anger boiled, as they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater. Remember the picture of the great theater? So they're all filing in. Dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's travel companions. It really paid off for them to, <laughs> to know Paul, right? Paul wanted to go into, but the believers wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him, begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. Inside that big amphitheater, the people were all shouting, some one thing and some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. He motioned for silence and tried to speak, but when the crowd realized he was a Jew, they started shouting again and kept it up for two hours. Can you imagine this scene? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Say that with me. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now let's do that for two hours. Closing worship. All right. (laughs) 
What an amazing scene, right? You get the gospel taking hold. You get people making decisions about how they're going to spend their money now that they love Jesus more than the things of the world, and an entire economy is crumbling in this tourist mecca of Ephesus. No more are people able to buy the little statues of Artemis. And this is causing a major issue. The moral decisions that the Ephesus Christians were making were running headlong into the economy of the day. So there are uh, a lot more people over the past few years are starting to notice that in our outreach ministries here at Schweitzer and Church at the Center, we're taking a look at our mercy ministry, at how we spend money, how we spend God's money, your money, from God through you. How do we spend that on people in poverty and people who are down and out, people who are hurting financially? And in the past and over decades of American Christianity, the government's really good at this, we just gave money. We just gave assistance. We provided relief. And you could think, okay, well, one way that you can respond to that is to say, okay, well, this isn't working. This isn't working because we aren't seeing lives transformed, so we got to do something different. And that was part of it. The way you do ministry in a church does need to have common sense, and it does need to be practical. But that's not what drove the decision for your church to change how we invest God's money. No, that was a moral decision. We looked at how people made in the image and likeness of God with capacity and potential to have their lives transformed were only being enabled to stay in a cycle of poverty by the money that we were giving. And we said, morally, we can't do this. We can't continue to invest the money that God wants us to invest in the kingdom on a process that's just keeping people enslaved to the disease of poverty. We have to stop. We have to stop, and under Jason's leadership and others here at the church, we've, we've stopped and we've said, no, we're going we're gonna to invest in people. Morally, we have an obligation to God to take our money out of the cycle of poverty, destruction. Now the food pantry policies have changed. Now we have a neighborhood garden that is investing in our neighborhood. Now we have a coach house for transitional living. We have Jobs for Life that many of you heard about. We have a new class called Faith and Finances. And the leader of Faith and Finances is a guy named Justin Setzer. I want, to hear, I want you to hear from him now on what that class is going to be. Faith and Finances is a, it's a 12-week course where we, uh, we discuss both our, obviously, our faith and our finances and how those are very connected, many of us. Um, when you take a step back, you, you really realize how connected they are. Um, we start off by talking about our relationships um, and how those are interconnected with our money, uh, our values and attitudes towards money. Um, and uh, whenever we write down what's most important in our life, um, a lot of times we realize we're not spending our money exactly according to those values and attitudes. We want the participants to realize that this is a long-term change for them and not just a 12-week class where they learn a few things and then they leave and, and um, it's over. This cl class really focuses on our relationship um, in four areas, God being the base of all relationships. Um, and if our relationship with Him is healthy, hopefully our relationship with ourselves and others around us and the rest of creation um, is healthy. And if those four relationships all built upon God's relationship is healthy, um, a lot of times our finances fall into place, not always in an easy fashion, 
But if those relationships are healthy, especially with God, um, our values and attitudes towards money, acting through God, typically put us in a good position um, to succeed financially. And becoming a Christian, hopefully we're living um, every step through God and um, acting as He would, you know, He would like us to, so that whenever we we do understand that it's not our money, it's God's money, and uh, He has chosen us to use it wisely, so that whenever we have that mentality that we are acting, um, God is acting through us and we are acting through God, we use our money with uh, purpose and for His glory um, here on earth. Did you notice how He said they talk about how their values and attitudes line up with their money. And they don't just talk about it in the class. Uh, they have an exercise that they do in week two that I'm not sure I want to sit down and do. And in that exercise, they make a list of the things that they value in their life. And then on the other side of the ledger, they make a list of the things that the last 10 things that they spent a significant amount of money on. They try to just see, do these things align? Is my money going where I say that I value things in my life? That might be an exercise that you do when you get home. The first step that Paul understood that would need to be taken in the life of a person, family, church, a city like Ephesus, is that we would have to understand who God is. That we would have to connect all this to more than just going out and trying harder to be better, to be more moral, and to change our behaviors. See, Paul understood, and earlier on in the chapter, chapter 19 of Acts, he comes in and he sees that these people are all excited about Jesus, but they hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. So before he starts even talking about anything else, he says, okay, well then we need to baptize you, not in the John's baptism, but in the baptize, baptize you in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit falls on Ephesus, and the effect of people, be, people being overwhelmed by the love of God was all of these things that we're talking about. See, it comes down to the teachings of Jesus that Paul would bring to the, to the city of Ephesus that we've got to trust God with our money, that we've got to trust God with our moral life. We've got to be able to make decisions that don't compromise our faith. And then when the consequences come at us, and when the dust settles, we have to be able to trust that God is going to be there for us. And God comes to be there for us in a lot of really unique ways if you followed God for long enough. In this particular story, the mayor, who was actually a worshiper of Artemis, broke this whole riot up and saved the Christians because he, you know, he said, look, this is, this is a lynch mob, guys. If you want, go to the Roman courts and make your case, but this isn't the way to do it. So God even came in that position and helped those early Christians out. Jesus would teach us that, look, look at the birds of the sky. Look at the flowers in the field. God provides for those. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be provided to you. See, Jesus understands that when we put our full faith and trust in God, everything changes. We then have the power to change how we spend our time, how we act in our lives, and how we spend God's money. It's interesting. Paul writes to the Ephesians, like I said, in AD 62, and he doesn't say, hi, this is Paul. Remember me? You guys need to start talking like you're Christians. You guys need to start 
behaving and you need to clean up your sexual lives. You need to, that's not what he does. Did you notice it's in chapter 4 and 5 that he starts giving them those instructions and exhortations. In the letter to the Ephesians, like most of Paul's letters, he spends significant time reminding people who they are in Christ. He does theology. He says, this is who you are. This is who God is. This is how much he loves you. In chapter 3, he ends up with talking about the love of God and the kingdom with this prayer. This is a prayer that I believe that we can pray in the spirit of Paul for all of us. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from, where, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, including us, forever and ever and God's people in the room said together. You see, in verse 23 that we looked at earlier, in the ESV, the, I love this part of the translation. It was read a little different in the NLT, but it said, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. There arose no little disturbance concerning the way. So I would ask you, maybe the Holy Spirit's already working in your heart about, you know, I, I gave the example of Brian and my daughter, myself, ex-business partner, how about in your life, where your money comes from and how your money goes out? Is there an area of compromise? In your area of behaviors in your moral life, is there an area of compromise? What is your statue of Artemis? If we walked around Ephesus and we saw them like buying the statues and oh, worshiping, we'd say that's ridiculous. That is silly, but you know, is it really different than the idols that we have? our lives. So what is your statue of Artemis? What is your statue that say, I'm letting, letting go of that? Because really, when people talk to me about their relationship with God, and what I look at in my own examination of my relationship with God, is, is there no little disturbance concerning the fact that God is in my life? It's when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, comforts the disturbed. That's a lot of my preaching because I love to reach out to people who are down, broken, oppressed, hurting, lost. And I love to say, you know what? You're disturbed. You're hurting. The gospel is here to comfort you. You know, but what else the gospel does? It disturbs the comfortable. Sometimes we get a little comfortable in our Christian life. Sometimes we settle in. Sometimes we make compromises. Sometimes we just sort of slip. Scripture like this, empowered by the Holy Spirit that can help us. If God's disturbing you right now in your comfort, know that he's loving you. Know that he's loving you into a life of obedience. It's really the only life where you're going to find joy, peace, contentment, and abundance. Will you pray with me? God, thank you so much for this series and the ability to kind of look back at the teachings of Paul, at the life of Paul, and connect with what he would say into our church and into our lives. Help us to respond to the gospel. Help us to respond to your love. Help us to be 
an answer to the prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians 3. We do thank you for the Apostle Paul, and we worship you in the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen.